0: In prayer. Father, in all things, we need your Spirit. We need your Spirit to work in us and among us by your Word today. Lord, as we have seen in Peter's letter, the Word of God is given through the Spirit Yet He uses instruments like the apostles and the prophets who spoke of Your truth. And Father, we thank You today that we live in a time where Your Word is so readily available to us. But Father, if we approach Your Word apart from dependence upon Your Spirit, then all we're reading are words on pages Father, Your Spirit is the one who takes Your Word and enlightens it to our darkened hearts. Shows us the transforming truth that is within and uses Your Word as the sharp two-edged sword to pierce deep into our hearts, to show us where we have failed to live according to what You have called us to who convicts us of sin and points us to the glory of Christ as our ultimate goal. So, Father, today as we have prayed that the Spirit would descend upon our hearts, Lord, we pray again, send Your Spirit. Work within us, Father, so that we would see and savor Christ more clearly and that in seeing him for who he is, we would be transformed into that same image. So, Lord, work in our midst by your Spirit. We pray all this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, we're finally getting towards the end of our time looking here at Peter's two letters. And again, the point of 1 Peter was to show us that we have everything we need in, in knowing Christ, that, that the knowledge of Christ and, and knowing Him is the key. And what he does in 2 Peter then is shows us that, that. or I'm sorry, 1 Peter is about that we're to be pilgrims, that we don't belong in this world, the path of a pilgrim. Um, and we don't belong... In this world, how do we then live in a world that is hostile to us? And Second Peter shows us that the power to walk as a pilgrim is found in knowing Jesus Christ. And again, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. And so we've looked at, at how Christ has made that call, how it's changing us and transforming us more into His image. We saw how He does this by primarily using the Word of God as the means by which we are able to see who Christ is and be changed more into His image. That the Scriptures themselves, the writings of the apostles and the prophets, the prophecy does not come from men, but it comes from God moving and working through men. And then He contrasted that with, that which seeks to carry us away from the truth of God's word, the false prophets and teachers. And he gives us warnings. And we saw four particular warnings that Peter gives about those false prophets and teachers. And then we come to chapter 3. And what we're going to see Peter doing now is reminding us of the importance of the things that we need to keep before us at all times as we walk this path of a pilgrim. So we're going to look uh, over the next several weeks at the reminders that Peter gives to his readers. Now, we all need reminders. I don't know about you, but I'm someone who sometimes has a hard time remembering things. Uh, sometimes it's selective, like take the garbage out. Oh, yeah, I was supposed to do that. Uh, but sometimes I just honestly don't remember things. I'm, I'm somebody, and this is, as a pastor, this is like, not a good thing to be weak at, but sometimes I will meet somebody and they will tell me their name. And as I'm shaking their hand, I'm like, I wish you would tell me your name again because I already forgot it. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. We all need reminders. You know, we have, we have a society today, we have technology that enables us to be reminded of things uh, more easily. You know, we have, you can set up alerts on your phone. You can set up the, there's apps for reminders um, although the er- alerts on your phone don't work unless you remember what you put them there for. I've had that happen as well, too. Like, oh, I'm supposed to remember something, I just can't remember what I was supposed to remember. And really what this is an indication to of us is our fallen state. It is an indication of the de- degradation that happens just over time. You know, I, I, I was recently enrolled in a, in a course uh, on preaching, uh, just something to sort of shore up and, and get a little bit more training. And, and I remember, it, now it's been like 10 years since I've sat in a seminary class. And so they had us read these three books, and then they had us have these quizzes on these three books. And, and they very vaguely put on the quizzes, you know, as long as you did the reading, this will be a straightforward exercise in recalling the information that you read. And so, now these books were like 300 and 400 pages long, and the quiz was over everything that was in the book. And I remember sitting down at the first quiz, and I'm like, I don't remember any of this stuff. And 10 years ago, I could probably do okay with that. So I guess... As the age comes, as the gray hairs come in, so goes the memory. And perhaps you can commiserate with me about that. But Peter here recognizes as well, not only do we just forget the mundane things of life, we also have a tendency to forget the essential aspects of our Christian walk. And Peter comes to us here in chapter 3 as he has Again, spoken of the power that pilgrims have in knowing Christ, pointed them to the Word of God, warned them about false teachers. Now, as he comes to the close of what he's writing in the New Testament, he wants to remind us of some things. And so we're going to look at these pilgrim reminders. So look with me in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read uh, verse 1 through verse 13. Peter writes, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these... The world that then existed, by the same word, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there's a lot here that Peter reminds us of. And the first thing I'd like us to consider this morning about what Peter's reminding us of is he calls us to remember the Word of God. Remember the Word of God. And with that remembrance, he's reminding us that it's not just a simple matter of, oh yeah, the Bible's there. Oh yeah, I I have a Bible. Or oh, there's one on my shelf. A Bible on your shelf that's never opened doesn't do you any good, does it? So what he, when he calls us to remember the word of God, he's calling us to pursue the word of God. Again, look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them. So he has a purpose in both letters. Now, there are some who would say that the, that the letter he's talking about here, the previous letter, is 1 Peter. And that's most likely the case here. There's also the possibility that it's another letter that's been lost to us. We know that that has happened. Paul talks about additional letters that were written to the church at Corinth, and we don't have those today. But regardless, Peter is making a point to say, I've written to you twice. So when, when someone repeats something to you, why are they doing that? It's important. They want you to pay attention. And so Peter says, look, this is the second time I'm telling you this. And in both times, both before and now, I'm writing for a purpose. And that purpose is that I would stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So what is it that he's calling us to do as we pursue the word of God? Well, we see, first of all, we have to pursue with sincerity. Sincerity. We have to pursue the Word of God with sincerity. Again, notice what he says there in verse 1. He is stirring up their sincere mind. Now, what does it mean to stir them up? Well, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 13, he had used this term, stir up. He says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder." So this emphasis on reminding and stirring up is something that Peter is recognizing as essential and and part of the point of what he's doing as he writes. And so he begins in chapter 1 and then here again in chapter 3. He's stirring us up. So what does it mean to be stirred up? Well, it requires to a disturbance. If you think about, you know, if, if you're stirring something in water or whatever, what, what are you doing? You're disturbing whatever there is sitting quietly. It's, the, the term is used in the, in the New Testament in particular to arouse someone, to sort of wake them up, or in some regards to disturb them, them themselves. When Jesus was in the boat and the disciples are outside of the boat and there's this storm that comes on the boat, and the storm is, is thrashing the ship back and forth. What's bent down to wake him up? Jesus is disturbed. And what's amazing there is Jesus walks out and into the storm and into all this disturbance, the one who himself was sleeping quietly without any disturbance in the bow, and he says, peace, be still. And what happens? It's quiet. He turns away the disturbance. It's actually used of another time in John where there was a storm and and Jesus walked out to the disciples on that storm in John chapter 6 and it describes the way that the sea was. It was disturbed or stirred up. And then again we find Peter using it twice here. So what, what is Peter trying to do when he's stirring us up? He's trying to arouse us from our slumber. Peter is writing... To, in one sense, upset you. To get a hold of you. To grab your attention. He's writing to make you recognize something is not right. And so he says, I'm stirring up. I'm disturbing you. And what is it in particular that he is disturbing? He's disturbing their sincere mind. Peter does not want pretenders to the faith. He doesn't want believers who say they believe, but really in the depths of their hearts don't. Peter is calling for sincerity in our walk as a pilgrim. That means that we're not just doing things to go through the motions. I hope that your desire in coming here today was sincere. What do I mean by that? Well, that you didn't come here because you felt like, oh, I have to check off a box. God will be mad at me if I don't go to church this morning. Or that you didn't come here because you know, well, it's been a couple weeks since I've been there and pastor's going to start calling me and wondering where I am. I hope you came here because you sincerely want to learn and grow among God's people. That's what Peter is getting at here. He seeks to stir up our sincere minds. God always desires sincerity. God has no time for pretenders. Now here's the reality. You can come here and you cannot be sincere and I will never know the difference. Because all I can see is the outward appearance, right? But where does God look? God looks on the heart. He knows if you are sincerely seeking Him. And so this is what Peter is driving at. God is always aiming at our hearts. He doesn't want us to play at being Christians, but rather that our walk would be sincere. We see this throughout Scripture We see it in Romans chapter 6, 17 through 18. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. And where does that obedience issue from? The heart. You've become obedient to the heart, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. Jesus is, or Paul here is getting at, and Jesus wants to get at, our hearts he doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He wants us to want to follow Him and live lives of salvation. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, in speaking to bond servants. So this is, has a lot of application for us today. Essentially, those of you who work a job, in one degree or another, you are a bond servant. You work for your boss. So what should your attitude be towards your boss? Do you just... Go about it like, oh, this is my job. I'll sort of get get through. I'll do my nine to five. And then go about my life with what's really there. No, notice, Notice what Paul says. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And then he gives a comparison. He says, with a sincere heart. Why does he speak to the sincere heart of how we deal with those who are employers? Because that is the type of heart we should have towards who? Towards Jesus Christ. With a sincere heart as you would Christ. And what is the opposite of having a sincere heart? Seeking to do it by way of what service? I service. As people pleasers. Instead, we are to be bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from where? The heart. Every other religion on the face of this planet seeks for you to keep a moral code, and that is it. In fact, this is what had happened when the Pharisees and the scribes had corrupted God's word so much so that they would have people keep the law, keep the rules, but still in their own hearts not truly follow God. And so Peter here is calling for us to pursue with sincerity. But where is that sincerity issuing from? And we've seen in some of these passages that we've already seen this morning, it refers to the heart. But Peter speaks of another aspect of the immaterial part of man. He speaks of us in regards to our mind. Notice what he says again in verse 2. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Why does he focus on The mind. What's interesting here, there's different words that are used for the mind in Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, and he does not use the most common word here for the mind. Rather, he uses a term that speaks of the operation of the mind. So we can say that we have a mind, but that mind is supposed to do something, right? It's supposed to think, it's supposed to consider. And so that's really what he's getting up. I'm stirring up your sincere understanding. I'm stirring up your sincere thoughts. I'm stirring up what you do with your mind so that you would sincerely exercise your mind and be reminded of what's necessary your thinking, your reasoning, your understanding. Now, this has always been God's intention. What's the greatest commandment in the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your what? Your mind. Now, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on the heart and the soul, but I think oftentimes we don't think about the mind aspect of this. What does it mean to love God with all your mind? And so really what Peter is reminding us of is one of the most basic commandments that God has given to His people. We need to think in such a way that shows that we love God. Our love for God should guide the operation of our minds, our reasoning, our thinking. Now here's the problem. What does sin do? Does sin help our minds or corrupt our minds? It corrupts our minds. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do the Gentiles walk? They have futility in their minds. So they're empty minds. Their minds are unable to work. Their minds are unable to help them. They're futile. And as a result of that, they're darkened in there. And here's the same word that Peter uses. In their what? Their understanding. Because their minds are corrupted by sin, the operation of their mind is darkened. They can't see things clearly, they can't think clearly. And so the corruption of sin that affects our minds affects the way that we think. And so as a result of this, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are actively hostile towards God, not just in our actions, not just in our feelings, but in our thinking as well. Notice what he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the what? And the mind. And we're by nature, because of our body, our hearts, our minds being fully given over to sin, God judges sin. And as a result of that, we are children of what? Wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. This hostility in our minds, this this darkness that is driven by the desires and, and passions of the flesh cause us then to be alienated from God and now not just alienated from Him, but our thoughts about God are not positive thoughts. They're hostile thoughts. The way we think about God, left to ourselves in sin, is that we hate Him. And we actively think that way. And so there's a big problem, isn't there? Sin corrupts our minds, and that then, in effect, affects the way our minds operate. But God is a God of grace, is He not? And what does He do? In Christ, He transforms not just our hearts, not just our souls, He transforms our minds as well. Notice what's said in Hebrews chapter 10. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified... And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them in, those, in them after those days. So this is the new covenant. Declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts. And he will write it where? On their minds. God works by His grace and through the work of Christ as the great sacrifice for our sins in transforming not just our actions, but transforming our thinking. So that the law of God is now not something that we are hostile towards, but rather it's written in our own minds. We think, actively think, about how we can please the Lord. And so what is our responsibility here as a result of this, here's the thing we have to recognize. This is a work entirely of God's grace. You cannot change your mind. This is something that, as I've worked in ministry longer, I've found I can't change anybody's mind. All right? I, you, and you know this as well. Right? You, you talk. If you're married, you want to change your spouse's mind on something. It's not going to really happen very easily, is it? It's really hard to change people's minds. And particularly a mind that has been corrupted by sin, a mind that is hostile towards God, it needs an act of God's grace to change that mind. And that grace is poured out in Jesus Christ. So now what is our responsibility? What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4? He tells us that we are not to walk the way That as he describes what it is to walk apart from Christ, he says that's not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, this is what we have to do. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then notice what he says. He doesn't tell us to. Keep a list of rules. That's not the first thing he tells us to do. He doesn't tell us to go to church. He doesn't tell you to give the offering. He doesn't tell you to to read your Bible and pray every day. All of those things are great. But the first thing he tells us to do is that we are renewed in the spirit of our what? Our minds. How you think is going to affect how you act. And of course, we know Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We're not to be conformed to this world. How do we fight against conformity to this world? We are transformed by the renewal of our what? Our minds. So Peter is calling us to pursue with sincerity from our minds the Word of God. Now, you say, why is it? The Word of God, because that's the very thing he begins to remind us of. Look again, I am stirring up, this is verse 1, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What is he reminding us? That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Where must our minds be focused? On the Word of God. Now, We're going to talk in a second about what he means by those two phrases he uses, the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through our apostles. But just before we get there, I just want to ask you, how often do you think about God's Word? How often is your mind shaped by God's Word? The Scriptures have a term for this. It's the term meditation. We're called to meditate upon God's Word. That requires the operation of our minds. We need to be thinking about it. How often do you think about God's Word? How often is God's Word and the principles that are found in it and the truth that's found in it upon your mind? Peter is saying, look, I'm reminding you of this. Why is he reminding you of this? Because you and I both know it's so easy to think about other things, right? It's easy to have the focus of our um, efforts in thinking drawn towards lesser things. It's easy for us to be caught up with career goals and to exercise the energy of our minds towards those things. It's easy to think about the relational problems that we're having and or relationships that we want to have, and and exercise the efforts of our mind towards those things. We can have financial difficulties and think about them. We We can essentially become singular focused on everything else but Scripture, can't we? And so Peter comes and he's like, I need to remind you guys of something. You need to, in the sincerity of your mind, Seek Scripture. Pursue Scripture. Are you doing that? Well, what is it that we're called to pursue with sincerity? We're called to pursue the genuine Word of God. The genuine Word of God. This is what we're called to remember. This is where we're to set our thoughts toward. Now, Already, Peter has pointed his readers to the Word of God in this book. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, he speaks about how we have everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. How do we get the knowledge of Him? He's granted us precious, verse 4, precious and very great promises. So chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he's focusing on the Word, knowing Christ through His promises, which is the Word of God. In chapter 1, verse 19, he contrasts the prophetic word with cleverly devised myths, which is what false teachers bring about. In chapter 2, verse 3, he speaks about how the false teachers exploit God's people with false words, turning them away from the word of God. And so the word of God is essential to the pilgrim's path. You cannot walk as a Christian, and neglect the Word of God. And Peter is calling us to that remembrance here. Remember, you must turn to the Word. But what is the Word of God? Where can we find the Word? And what is amazing here is Peter calls us to recognize what the Word of God is. And it's two things. The predictions of the holy prophets... And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So there are two found, two sources from which the Word of God comes: the prophets, and that's referring to which half of the Bible—Old Testament—and the apostles, which is referring to which part of the Bible—the New Testament. And that's it: the prophets and the apostles. Now, he talks about the prophets, first of all, the holy prophets. He speaks of the predictions, or literally those things which are spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. And in particular, as we come through 2 Peter, he's going to describe how that's referring to the day of the Lord, a topic that we'll delve into in the upcoming weeks. But I think it's important for us to just note... That in that day of the Lord, God's plan for the world joyfully includes the salvation of his people. But it also, and we cannot neglect this, includes the judgment of sin and the destruction of the wicked. And both of those things are clearly described for us in both the Old Testament and in the New. And so these holy prophets is... is is Peter commending to us the Old Testament. Now, in fact, if we think about it, when Peter's writing here to these believers, they did not have a nice, hardbound pew Bible that was like this with the Old Testament and the New Testament put together. They didn't have that. In fact, many of them in the first century were likely, illiterate. they couldn't even read. It was expensive to produce uh, writings, You know, back in those days, there was no printing press. Gutenberg hadn't come on the scene yet. And so as a result of that, the Word of God was preserved through hand-writing the Scriptures. You know, I mean, it would be hard enough if you had typewriters to do it. Imagine using your hand to do it. And so... The believers in the New Testament, the only thing they had really true access to was the Old Testament. And then these letters that began circulating. The the Old Testament was the primary Bible of the New Testament believer. Now, here's the thing. If Peter's writing these things to us and we're to be reminded of them, and the primary Bible of the New Testament believer was was the Old Testament, then shouldn't we pay attention to the Old Testament? And my fear is that what do we often do as believers today? We neglect the Old Testament and focus only on the New Testament. Now, it's, now I'm not trying to say you shouldn't read the New Testament. Please understand. But don't neglect the Old Testament. In fact, Peter is reminding us that we need to remember the predictions of the holy prophets in the Old Testament. It is through these predictions, really, that we see the faithfulness of God demonstrated. Why should you believe in God? Because He never fails His word. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David as He spoke by the mouth of His what? holy prophets from of old. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Peter, as he's preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem, challenges them. He says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, speaking of the crucifixion of Christ, as also did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets... That his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So, what is the message then? All right, the Old Testament prophets spoke of Christ coming. What is the message? Repent. And turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that, may, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. What was, we just read it in Mark. Jesus began His ministry, and what was His message? What was the first word of the gospel message, the gospel proclamation that Jesus said? Repent and believe the gospel. And so we have the same thing. This has been God's plan from the beginning. How do we know that? The holy prophets tell us this. So we have to recognize that the Old Testament is necessary for us. What what does Paul tell Timothy? How much of Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction of mind? How much? All. And that includes the Old Testament. But Peter's not done. Yes, the Old Testament is necessary. We must not neglect it. But then he points to the New Testament. What is the New Testament? The New Testament is the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. The Greek construction here is really difficult. Um, it literally means, "and the command of your apostles of our Lord and Savior. I think the ESV gets what Peter is trying to get at here. The implication is clear. The writings of the apostles, and who are the apostles? The apostles were those who were directly commissioned by Christ on earth. So those who saw, and particularly those who saw the risen Christ. So you've got the 11 disciples, plus they added one more in that had seen Christ. And then you have one apostle who was born out of due time, the apostle Paul. And that's pretty much it. And why did God send these apostles? Why why did He commission them? So that just like the prophets gave the word of God, Christ's word could be given through the apostles. Maybe you've heard of people refer to themselves as red-letter Christians. You ever heard of that term? A red-letter Christian is someone who essentially says, I really love the teachings of Jesus. And so they, the, you know, the Bibles that have the red-letter editions where all the words of Christ are in red, that's the type of Christian they are. I follow Jesus, but what they end up doing is either neglecting or diminishing the message of the apostles, particularly Paul, but also Peter and John and James. What is Peter saying here? He's saying, when you reject Paul's writings, whose word are you ultimately rejecting? Jesus' Christ's. Notice again what he says. It is the commandment of The Lord and Savior that comes through the means of who? The apostles. There is a movement, particularly today, in in some some realms of Christendom that want to minimize Paul's influence. They say he corrupted the teachings of Jesus. You'll see this. You turn on the History Channel. That's what you're going to see. That's the type of idea. Paul, Paul changed what Jesus was teaching. And that's not what Peter says here. What does Peter say? What did Paul's words are actually whose words? Christ's words. And so we're called to remember those words. So what then can we take from what Peter says here in pursuing the Word of God? We're called to pursue the Word with sincerity. We're called to pursue the Word from our minds, and we're called to pursue the genuine Word of God, the writings of the prophets and the apostles, the Old and the New Testament. So how do we then respond to this? Well, we pursue the Word sincerely. When it comes time for you to come on Sundays and we're coming here and the Word of God is being opened and expounded to you, Are you just going through the motions or do you really want to be here to learn what God says? You're to come sincerely to God's Word. Not just when you come here on Sundays, but what about in your own time in God's Word? When you open up the Word of God and you read it, are you just doing your devotions, doing your duty? Or are you really looking to grow and feed upon the rich Word of God that is nourishment to your souls. You know, if if someone were to tell me this afternoon, Pastor, I baked you a delicious ham. Do you think I'm going to sincerely go after that ham? Yes. Why? Because I love ham. And so our sincere pursuit of God's Word shows us that we love the Word. Do you sincerely pursue God's Word? And then secondly, you need to be disturbed by your lack of pursuit of God's Word. Peter found it necessary to write to these first century believers to stir them up, to wake them from their slumber, to almost be like a violent storm in their lives because they weren't pursuing the Word of God correctly wonder as you sit here this morning and you evaluate how you pursue God's word is it what it ought to be or are you also needing to be stirred up and disturbed and then finally pursue the whole word of God don't just be someone who loves the new testament i love the new testament but we should also love the Old Testament. That means that we also love all those passages in numbers with those names that nobody in their right mind can pronounce, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. You realize that that is God giving a tangible evidence of the faithfulness He's made to His promises. He told Abraham, I'm going to make your seed like the sands of the sea. Like the grains of sand in the sea. And then you read the grains of sand in the sea. And what do we do? We oh, I gotta go through all these words, these names again. No! Be encouraged. God keeps his promises. Or you're reading in Leviticus and you see these strange rules. No mixed clothing. Can't eat uh, a kid boiled in his mother's milk. What's going on? God is a God of holiness. And He requires holiness from all those who would know Him. Pursue the whole Word of God. Turn to the New Testament and see all the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then turn from your own dependence, your own own thinking, your own ways, and trust in Him completely. Which finally, if we're going to pursue the whole Word of God, you know what that means I'm not pursuing? My way of thinking. I think I've mentioned this before here. I have a, there's some things that are pet peeves of mine. And one pet peeve of mine is when someone is talking to me and they say, well, I know that the Bible says this, Pastor, but I think. And then they essentially turn back what the Bible says. Do you ever do that? I'll tell you, every time you choose sin over following Christ, you do that. So when we're called to pursue the Word of God, it's more than just pursuing it and reading it, and and, and being, but having it in the forefront of our minds so that it affects the way we live our lives. Not as a means of earning favor with God, but as an outworking of seeing Him in His Word. So pursue the whole Word of God. Pursue it sincerely. Be disturbed by your lack of pursuit of God's Word. And then go to God's Word. Think upon it. Meditate on it. And be transformed. This is just the beginning of the reminders and particularly the reminders about God's Word that Peter gives us. This morning we're going to observe the Lord's table. And as we always do, we take up an offering for those in our congregation who have specific needs uh, for our Benevolence Fund. Uh, this fund exists to help those that, that either in this congregation or at times outside of this congregation that have uh, demonstrable, financial needs, and we seek to help them with those things. God calls us to care for those who are in need. So, if we can have the ushers come, we'll receive that offering at this time. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the offering. Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word that is given to guide and direct us in all things. And Father, now as we have this opportunity to give to those who have needs in this congregation, may we do so uh, seeking to give thanks to you that you've blessed us to be able to do this. Use these funds for your glory. Give wisdom to the leadership here as we seek to help those in need. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Well, we're going to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us on, on the cross this morning through our observance of the Lord's table. Christ calls His disciples to go through a physical representation of what He suffered on a regular basis. He calls us to do this often, and we uh, observe this once a month here, usually on the first Sunday of the month. It's an opportunity for us to remember. Our, our Savior is exceedingly gracious, isn't he? And he puts this as a command to his people to give us a time to set aside all the things that distract us from what he's done and to reset, if you will, to remember what we're living for. The cross is to be central in our lives. And so this meal, this table that we come to and share in together is an opportunity for us to remember and to show as a sign what Jesus has done. It doesn't save us. By partaking in this supper, we in no way, shape, or form add to anything that would make God save us. We're saved by grace through faith. Grace is given not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done. So we must realize as we come to this table that it doesn't save us, but rather it is a precious gift of our Savior to remind us of what He's done. The bread reminds us of His body which was broken for us. Christ's body was cut, whipped, beaten, lacerated, and bled. And He faced all of that for His people. His body was broken for you. The cup reminds us of His shed blood. Blood without spot or without blemish. Blood that flowed freely on the top of a hill called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And there Jesus poured out His life for us. Why? The broken body, the blood that was shed, the gory sight of Christ is all given to remind us that the physical suffering of what Jesus faced was just a drop in the bucket of what he truly faced as the wrath of God was poured out upon him. The body was broken because it was the will of the Father to do it. Why? So that we, who are in Christ by faith, would never face the wrath of God. And so this is an opportunity for us to remember the very basis of our hope that Jesus bled and died for us. So if you're here today and you're professing faith in Jesus Christ alone, you're welcome to come and to partake with us. but. Let us never forget that this is not just a ritual. It is an opportunity for us to set our hearts and our minds at remembering Christ. And if we do this in a flippant way, if we come at this as just some ritual that we go through, the Scripture tells us that God judges that. And in the church at Corinth, some people had fallen sick and some had even died because of their lack of recognition, their mockery of this table. So we come joyfully, but we come solemnly, remembering what Christ has done for us. We'll distribute the elements at this time. Son, who died for us. Thank you for the body of Christ that was broken for us. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. On the night when Christ was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Shall we partake together? Let's pray and thank God for what the cup represents. Father, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Father, For millennia, your people in Israel would slaughter the Passover lamb. And over and over again, this sacrifice would be given, pointing to the time when the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world would come. (laughs) And Father, we thank you that that lamb is Jesus Christ, And Father, we thank you that today he is standing in heaven as the lamb that was slain. And that he has made an offering by his own blood into the true holy places, into the very presence of you. His blood is offered to cover all our sin. So that now, Father, we can come boldly before your throne and there receive grace. Grace that we desperately need. Grace that helps us in our times of need. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ that washes us white as snow. Father, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So thank you, Lord, for the shed blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Christ then took the cup and blessed it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Shall we partake together? The scriptures tell us that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show or proclaim the Lord's death until he come. We would add to that the words of John in Revelation, Even so come. Lord Jesus. Let's stand. We're going to sing a newer hymn. I'm going to go ahead and sing the first verse through myself so you can get an idea of it. Some of you may know it. Actually, I think most of you have some familiarity with it, so we'll just sing the first verse and the third verses. I will glory in my Redeemer. All three verses. Let's stand and sing.
1: One more time, a cappella. I will glory in my Redeemer, who waits for me at gates of gold. And when he calls me, it will be paradise, his face forever to behold, his face forever to behold. Amen. Let's be dismissed in prayer.
0: Father, Lord, send your son to redeem your people. Father, send Christ to capture his church again and to come and to set right all that is wrong. Father, as we pray, it would be our great joy to hear the trumpet sound announcing the return of the King. But until that day, Father, we seek to live out what we remembered this morning, that Christ died to cleanse us from all sin. So, Father, take your word, bind it to our hearts and minds. May we seek to know you more through your word and to live according to it by your grace. We give thanks for all you've given us in Christ. And we pray all this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, Have a great week.